Welcome to this podcast of the European Respiratory Journal. This is Dr. Martin Korb, who is chief editor. And with me today are Andreas von Leupold and Tom Similowski. And we will talk about a paper that was just published in the journal called Observing Dyspnea in Others Elicits Dyspnea Negative Effect and Brain Responses. Andreas von Leupold is the senior author of this paper. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Leuven in Belgium. Andreas, welcome today. Hello. Thanks for the nice invitation. And I also have with me uh, Tom Similowski, who was a co-author of this paper. And Tom is the associate editor for the European Respiratory Journal. He usually handles papers in this topic area. Tom is at the University of Paris Sorbonne, and he's director of a respiratory research unit called Clinical and Experimental Respiratory Neurophysiology. Welcome, Tom. Hello. Thank you for the invitation. Let's start with Andreas to just give us a little bit of a summary of uh, what that paper shows us. Yes, so uh, maybe I will start a little bit about the background and about the methods and then about our main findings uh, that we obtained here in this study. So uh, we know that dyspnea is the cardinal symptom in many diseases and usually caused by pathologic mechanisms which can be measured and which can be diagnosed. However, frequently dyspnea relates only weakly or not at all to these pathologic mechanisms, suggesting uh, that additional neuropsychosocial processes contribute to ex um, experience. In addition, it has often been neglected, actually, that patients often experience their dyspnea within social contexts, such as in the presence of family members, friends or caregivers. And little is known about the potential effects that the observation of dyspnea in this patient causes in the um, observing person. Therefore, we tested the mere observation of dyspnea in others, whether that constitutes a relevant neuropsychosocial process that would elicit dyspnea, negative effect and increased brain responses in the observer. In three studies, we presented series of pictures and videos to healthy individuals, which either depicted persons suffering from dyspnea or controlled pictures and videos which were unrelated to dyspnea. We obtained self-reports of dyspnea and effective state. And in addition, in one of the studies, we also measured breathing patterns as well as brain responses during picture viewing using electroencephalography. In all three studies, we found that dyspnea-related pictures and videos elicited mild to moderate dyspnea and increased negative effect when compared to controlled stimuli. This was also paralleled by increased brain responses as indicated by larger positive potentials in the electroencephalogram during watching dyspnea-related pictures, while breathing patterns actually did not change. Moreover, Increases in dyspnea were modestly related to higher levels of empathy in the observer, but they were unrelated to objective indices of breathing. So together, these findings demonstrate that observing dyspnea in others elicits mild to moderate dyspnea, negative effect and increased brain responses, which might constitute a neuropsychosocial process that um, contributes to the experience of dyspnea in the absence of respiratory changes and physiological dysfunction. This vicarious dyspnea might increase suffering in observers in several social contexts. Obviously, we have, uh, as respirologists, often 
the thought that dyspnea and oxygen are related uh, and these individuals, of course, don't have that. Can you just, as a follow-up of what you said, give me a little bit an idea about what does it say about the mechanisms of dyspnea? Uh, sure. So the present findings actually demonstrate that not only uh, sensory signals from our lungs, from the respiratory muscles or blood gases can elicit dyspnea, but that also neural and psychosocial processes can strongly contribute to the experience of dyspnea. And this supports recent views that central brain processes alone can elicit or significantly intensify the experience of dyspnea, even in the absence of changes in breathing patterns and related sensory signals. So in our view, together, these findings are further proof for the multifactorial nature of the experience of dyspnea, which actually requires an integration not only of afferent sensory information, but also of affective cognitive processes, as well as information from the um, environment within our brains. Thank you, Andreas. Now, let's move to Tom, because Tom, you're a respirologist, and we always uh, care for our patients and their family members and caregivers. And this work really shows that family members and caregivers of patients who suffer from dyspnea are also affected to a considerable degree. What's the relevance of these findings for your clinical practice? Well, um, I, I think this uh, study um, has very, very strong relevance uh, because it, it, it makes dyspnea very close to pain in, in, an, additional, uh, in an additional manner. We, we know that dyspnea and pain are closely related, but uh, what has been shown by this study is that for dyspnea, like for pain, it just suffices to be exposed to the suffering of others to suffer yourself. So for the family members, it is very important because it means that patients will live, people who live with patients with chronic breathlessness, they will suffer from that from a psychological point of view. And in fact, there is a very interesting study that was published in the ERG two or three years ago uh, by Nancy Kentish Barnes, who, who is an anthropologist and a sociologist and who works with intensivists. And what she showed is that people who have lost a relative in the ICU and who have seen this relative having difficulty breathing, they have more often and more severe post-traumatic stress disorders than, than other people. So it points out the relevance of the observation made in the vicarious dyspnea study. Um, if you live with someone who is dyspneic, you are going to suffer yourself. So for a clinician, it calls for specific attention, not only to the patients who are breathless, but also to their, uh, to their relatives. And I, I would extend that to caregivers. Uh, if, you, if you care for patients with respiratory suffering, um, you, you are also going to experience this kind of malaise that has been described by, by the study. Um, and, and, and it's perhaps even worse for a caregiver than for a, a relative because a caregiver is there to, uh, to relieve. And the big difference between dyspnea and pain is that it's not um, very easy to, to relieve dyspnea relative to pain. You don't have uh, an, uh, analgesics and stepwise procedures like you have in pain. So you can feel powerless. So if you have a distress and if you are powerless, then you are going to flee. 
And that could contribute to explain why the breathlessness of patients is at times not, uh, it becomes invisible, you know, and is not, not cared for by, by the caregivers. So this, this study has very, very important consequences for, for clinical practice. And can this be actually used positively in your practice? Do you have any, any suggestions on how to approach that and manage the patient and their caregiver better? Yeah, I, I think it, it would be very important to make caregivers realize uh, what they experience when they see someone uh, having problem breathing and just, you know, identifying the fact that you are unwell because you are seeing this person is in distress uh, is something that could be used, you know, to foster and to focus empathy. And Andreas mentioned that uh, in the study, there was a relationship between the degree of reaction to the observation of despair and the personal empathy. So I think this can be used, you know, to to explain to people that they should not avoid and they should not flee. But on the contrary, when they perceive these negative sensations by seeing the, the other having problems breathing, they should go towards the patient and, and help it. I, I like to make a parallel with a study I read uh, a while ago where people who were uh, offenders, social offenders, um, the, the young young people, hooligans, uh, it, it was it was observed that they were unable to recognize the expression of fear on the face of the of the people that they were uh, having a negative action, uh, and then when they were exposed to images of uh, people experiencing fear, and they they became better and better at, recog at recognizing fear, then they were less violent. So I, I would make the same parallel. You know, if you explain to a caregiver that. Uh, seeing someone uh, having difficulty breathing triggers a normal reaction, and that should be an alert, and that you should go to the patients to help the patient. I think that could be very positive. Okay. Th thank you, Tom. Is there any practical tip from uh, the psychology perspective, Andreas, that you want to give us uh, before we end this podcast? Well, in addition to what um, Tom just nicely described, I think that vicarious dyspnea, elicited by pictures or videos, uh, that it might also be used in more cognitive, behaviorally oriented interventions in order to desensitize those patients who uh, avoid dyspnea-related situations, such as um, physical activities, and because they have high levels of anticipatory fear of dyspnea. So, of course... Um, this would uh, would uh, there's a need to test this further, but such interventions I think might help to increase the level of physical activity in dyspneic patients, which is a central aim in many treatment approaches. For example, in um, pulmonary rehabilitation programs in patients with COPD. Good, thank you very much. So this brings us to the end of our today's uh, podcast. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Martin Korb, Chief Editor of the European Respiratory Journal, and I was just talking with Andreas von Leupold from Leuven in Belgium and Tom Similovsky from Paris about an article uh, called Observing Dyspnea in Others Elicits Dyspnea Negative Effect and Brain Responses, which was published in the ERJ in April 2018. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us, and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.